Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Stuart Smith, founder and enologist of Smith Padrone, is never short on opinions nor words. It's just one reason I was so excited to visit and talk with him at his winery on Spring Mountain in Napa Valley. I sat down there with Smith and had a wide-ranging discussion on topics such as sustainable farming, organics and biodynamics, wild fermentation, natural wine, and of course, we also tasted some of his delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditer.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditer.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart. Joining me today is Stu Smith of Smith Madrone on Spring Mountain in Napa Valley. Welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thanks Stu, for having me. I've been me. looking forward to this interview for a long time because you're never a man short on words. And uh, this, this is going to be a fun show. Tell me how you got started in wine. I'll try to make it reasonably short. I, I, I was going to Berkeley in the 60s and, and learned that I liked wine more than I liked beer, which is pretty unusual for a, a guy who played freshman football and rugby at Cal. And then also, I, the, the story has to go back. I was a lifeguard during the summertime on the beaches in Santa Monica. And I got to know a family behind uh, my guard station. And they asked uh, what I was doing uh, as a graduating senior. I said, well, I'm going off to graduate school, UC Davis in viticulture and oology, want to get in the wine business. And I know it sounds kind of like a cliche, but they go, oh, that's so cool. We have so many friends who want to be part of a winery. If you find the land, we'll, we'll, we'll finance it. Well, you know, to a 21-year-old, that sounds pretty damn interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then reality sat in, and uh, and it didn't work. But they had launched me into a direction, and I am nothing if not tenacious. And I'd found a piece of property on the very top of Spring Mountain, and then I just uh, cobbled together a partnership of family and friends, and frankly, anybody with any money who would, who would, who would you know, give me money to, to get into the wine business. Now, fortunately, it was at a period of time. And, and I, I first walked this property in the fall of 1970. And at that time, it was pre-Napa Valley, pre-oil embargo, pre-inflation, pre-wine. Uh, Napa Valley, the Napa Valley wine industry was not the dominant industry in, in the county by a long shot. Livestock was. And the wine industry in California was dominated uh, by what we would call what we called then generic wines. Uh, they were they were gallons and half gallons mostly of Chianti and Claret and Rhine wine and Hardy Chablis Burgundy. and Hardy Burgundy. <laughs> and I remember I was an econ undergraduate, and I did as a senior a uh, a report, if you would on the wine industry and I came up into the Napa Valley and and uh, got to know it and thought well this beats the hell out of going back to Southern California what have I got to lose but a couple years of um, of uh, you know education and so that's that's how I I started the whole thing 1970s early 70s like you said it was a different time and there was a lot of that big brand but it was also a big brand but big big high production jug wine here but there were the beginnings of the the craft producer the high quality producer looking to produce better wine rather than more wine 
did you talk to any of those people back then and determine that this was maybe the route you wanted to take? Yes. Uh, I came up and, and spoke with Lee Stewart, who was um, the proprietor of what was then Suverain. It's now Burgess. But Suverain was, was, a, was a, you know, Lee Stewart was a highly respected, small quality winemaker. Brad Webb uh, uh, was the winemaker of uh, Fremark Abbey, uh, which had just started in 68. Uh, and his brother, Denny Webb, was a professor, one of my professors out at UC Davis in immunology. In, in, in Bob Madavi had just started in 66, the Robert Madavi Winery. And then um, Chuck Carpey and Lori Wood had just started Fremark Abbey. And I came up and spoke with both of them. And then also uh, uh, a very young um, Jack Davies, young, youngish compared to the others. Uh, youngish Jack Davies had just started Schramsburg and came up and spoke with him. And, and, um, and I came away with uh, basically a, a highly motivated to do it. You know, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> if I knew then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have done it because there's no way I, it, it just, it just wasn't financial, financially feasible to do it. Um, cause it's, the wine industry is a stupid industry. Uh, I, I ended up teaching to help make, uh, ends meet, a couple years at Napa Community College and 10 years over at Santa Rosa Junior College. And, and I used to say to my students, and a lot of them were going into the wine business. Um, I said, look, if you want to make money, um, buy a McDonald franchise or two. And in 10 years, you can retire to the, to the Bahamas or whatever. And, and, uh, and, and the wine industry, after 10 years, the, says, feed me, feed me, feed me. And the other thing, too, is with an economic background. I, was a, I did my, my uh, economics in macro and uh, macroeconomics and history of economics, and so I had a, a long view, and and I had no uh, no delusions that this was going to be anything but a tough road to hoe, especially for someone who was so young and really um, raised so little money. Uh, originally had an idea of how much money I wanted to raise, and only d- didn't come close. And the old adage that whatever you start out with double and you might be close to what you need is true. And so uh, I was in a hole. And it, it, was, a, it was a big hole for a, a, a long years. Um, but, you know, I was young, strong, strong back, weak mind. Uh, my brother joined me uh, and we did everything ourselves. As a matter of fact, we, we built this entire winery ourselves with our own hands. Uh, and I don't think there are many, you know, wineries. Not, a lot, not, not today's Napa Valley, yeah. that's for sure. So that's how I, that's how I got into it. In White Spring Mountain, you know, back in back in nineteen seventy, you probably could have selected land anywhere from the valley floor to to to, to Howell Mountain to to Spring Mountain, anywhere you wanted in the whole valley. Why why'd you choose this place? The two fundamental reasons, uh, which I believe are fundamental to grape growing and winemaking for the last 7,000 years and are epitomized by Virgil's uh, treaty on agriculture that he published or wrote in any way uh, in 43 B- B.C. And he's the one who, who did a whole thing on viticulture and 
and, cre- and, and created the term Bacchus loves the hills, Bacchus colosamate. And, and he recognized that the best grapes came from the mountains. That's, that's what the, the, the implication is there. The other one is that like fish, um, you cannot make a great fish dinner from three or four day old fish. The best fish you get or can make are fresh, right out of the ocean, right out of the stream, right out of the lake. When I go uh, fishing up in, in uh, Canada for uh, a lake trout, we, we catch a nice trout. We'll just pull over the shore and cook it right there. And, and that's the very best. Same thing with, with wine grapes. You cannot make great wine from anything other than great grapes. And the whole project was to make the finest wine humanly possible. And that's why I came to the hills. Stony Hill is right below us. They're downslope and to the east of us. We have a quarter mile boundary with them. Their upper vineyards are fairly close to our lower vineyards. Uh, and I knew that because of Stony Hill uh, that we were in a, in a good climate. And then this property had been in vineyards in the early 1880s. And then with Phylloxera at the end of the 19th century had gone out of business. And when I walked the property in the fall of 1970, here were a bunch of grape stakes, little hand-split redwood grape stakes, pooched out at a 35 to 45 degree angle um, because a Douglas fir tree had grown up right next to it. And these Douglas fir trees uh, were two and a half feet in diameter. So I knew the soil was good based on what the growth, the, the regrowth of the forest had been. And so those two things uh, gave me confidence in moving forward. We closed on the property in early, uh, mid-May of 71. Uh, I got my logging permit, and there aren't many people who have ever logged a vineyard before, but I did. Uh, there were a lot of firsts that I did that at the time I didn't realize were, <laughs> were first, and, and maybe not the greatest idea of the firsts of whatever, but we were first on a lot of things, and... Um, and that's certainly one of them. So we logged the forest in 71, planted the vineyards in 1972. We planted Chardonnay, Riesling, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Pinot Noir. And then my brother and I built the winery in 74, and we've been growing grapes and making wine ever since. We don't buy grapes. We only make wine from our own vineyards, and we have about 38 acres in vineyards. Um, we do about three to 4,000 cases. So, you know, maybe, maybe we'll get up to 5,000. And we grafted over the Pinot Noir in the mid-80s. And um, as I like to say, uh, California makes every bit as bad a Pinot Noir as do the French. <laughs> they got nothing on us there. Tough uh, grape. Tough grape. Uh, and then in the late 90s, we added uh, Merlot and uh, Cabernet Franc. Uh, and then just last year, 2017, we planted uh, a little block of Petit Verdot. Because we wanted to mess around with that grape and see how it how it's going, we I think that the best grapes come from, as Virgil said in 43 B.C., the best grapes come from the mountains. Now that doesn't mean that all all wine from the mountain is great, and it doesn't mean that there aren't great wines from the valley floor, uh, because there are, and there's a, you know just as you know there can be bad wines from sure. the mountains also. But the fundamental issue is that grapes have to struggle. 
and and develop and uh, and you allow the vines to come into a balance with it, their nature and so that you don't overproduce and we don't over irrigate or irrigate at all and then the result of that is that we get a smaller berry and a smaller berry is important because most of the flavor and color and tannins are in the skin and a small berry has a much higher skin to, to juice. juice ratio and for the listeners think of a golf ball or even a um a marble if anybody still plays with marbles <laughs> uh versus a beach ball right uh also from an irrigation point of view those of you who grow tomatoes uh know that if you irrigate them all day long uh, every day, you're going to end up with tomatoes that are big and beautiful and juicy and have no flavor. No flavor, right. And if you cut the water off to them or limit the water severely, you're going to have a tomato. may not be as pretty looking. Uh, and it'll it'll be a little like a smaller, tomato. but it'll have flavor. Right. And so that's those, those basic uh, agricultural principles are what drove me to the mountains. Now, it's harder. Uh, it's more expensive. Um, uh, but it's, you know, I've never, never regretted it. And the one thing I would do over again and again and again is come to the mountains and come, you know, to, to make great wine. If I wanted to make money, I would have gone into the valley floor. No question. It's easier. You, you, you get somewhere 50, 60, even sometimes a hundred percent more tons to the acre than you do on the mountain. You have visitors that are driving up Highway 29 and, and yeah, the Silverado so Trail. It's so much easier. And if you had 36 acres of vineyard, you're on the flats. You don't have a whole bunch of forest to take care of. You don't have all the you know animals and everything else that 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 come through. It's just, it, frankly, it's it's not as an interesting life sure. as it is as being on the mountains. <laughs> now, n- nothing that we do on the mountain is easy. If there's an easy way and a hard way, we seem to always end up doing it the hard way. But those are things that, that teach you in a way that, that education simply can't. You know, doing it the hard way and doing it and trying to do it well is, um, is uh, just really, really important. And it's rewarded with great wines then. Yeah. So you've got, you said 38 acres under vine? We do. And what's the size of your total property? Uh, it's, it's about 200 acres. Um, and it's mostly forested. Uh, some of it is in conservation easements where we have redwoods that are old growth redwoods. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, it takes a lot of time and energy and, and, uh, to make sure that, that we, you know, we're, we're, we're doing the right thing with, with the property and, and, uh, the trees and, and the animals and mm-hmm. all of the other things that are running around out there. <laughs> yeah, we were t- we, you, you and I had spoken previously, and it was prior to the vote on the Oak Woodlands and Watershed Initiative. Um, How did you feel that worked out? Well, it's um, well, we were victorious. We uh, we 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 were like Sisyphus, uh, having to roll a rock up a hill. And for your listeners, this was called Prop C. Uh, some people who don't like the wine industry, started an initiative called the Oak Woodlands and Watershed Initiative. And they claimed that they were going to protect water and and watershed and oak woodlands. And who, in their right mind, wouldn't want that? Right. 
So that's as close to motherhood and apple pie as you can get. And so the biggest issue that, that we have in the valley, which is pissing off everybody, is traffic. Now, my attitude is that, you know, who, who are they to think that they have a right to a traffic-free life when we live within 70 miles of one of the most congested traffic areas in the world, which right. is the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, we're not one or two, but I think we're three, four, or five. And, 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 they're, and they're, they're upset about that. And the only thing that keeps Napa Valley in a pure agricultural environment is wine grapes. There is no other agricultural product that can compete with housing. Sure. We are the firewall against housing. Now, they'll claim, oh, yes, but we have ordinances. What they don't understand in this country is that we're, we're a free market capitalist society. If there is a profit to be made, there will be people who will go after it. They'll figure out how to do it. They'll figure out how to do it, and greed will trump. Ooh, I'm not sure <laughs> I should use that word. <laughs> greed will trump re regulations anywhere. Sure. Uh, There's always a way around it. it it'll no take time, involved. but they will eventually get to it. And Measure C did something that has not been done in over 50 years. They put housing at a higher level of value than vineyards. Oh, really? Because what they said is that in, and, and this was going to regulate a third of the county's uh, land, which was Oak Woodlands. Mm -hmm. And they said that wouldn't be any more vineyards allowed, but you can build houses. So what that says from a land use point of view is that houses have more value, value. than do vineyards. So if you can't build or plant vineyards or convert oak woodlands to vineyards. And by the way, Napa County has 9% of its land mass in vineyards. That's it, 9%. Not very much. You look at Germany and you look at Europe and, and uh, the land masses in those areas is much higher than 9%. Sure. Double, triple the percentage. Um, but if you, if you can only build houses, those properties are going to sell... And the people who buy them are going to be of the uber wealthy sure. group, and they are going to be build houses that are eight, ten, fifteen thousand square feet, and uh, they're unregulated. Mm -hmm. Now wineries are regulated up the yin yang here. They are. Um, but if you want to build a fifteen or twenty thousand square foot compound, you know, house compound, whatever, you go through no environmental regulations like what we do. And then, and then let's just go back. We have groundwater. We, there, the, we have a, a groundwater report that says we are doing great. We have um, uh, all kinds of reports uh, that show that there is no fundamental issues with our environment in Napa County. And as I like to say, if there is, we'll fix it. We are good at fixing things. Sure. Um, and in the 50 years that I've been here... Um, uh, logging that used to be uh, uh, a pretty rough go on on the land is now done in a much more sustainable environmental manner. And as I like to say, 
Uh, 40 years ago, I was a hell of a lot better farmer than I was 50 years ago. And 30 years ago, I was a better farmer than I was 40 and on and on. And we embrace best management practices all the time. That is what being in farming is today, is embracing best management practices. And we farm in a sustainable manner in a way that I hope that uh, a thousand or two or three thousand years from now, somebody's going to be on this property farming wine grapes. So you say sustainable. Does that mean are you organic? Are you doing biodynamic stuff? Uh, uh, first of all, we are f- what we call fish-friendly uh, farming certified. So there is an organization that looks at farmers, and uh, their main goal is making sure that the waterways are as clean as possible for fish. And I like fish, and I like waterways. And so I chose to be certified as fish-friendly farming. Biodynamics is a bunch of hooey. Uh, I had a blog for many years. It's still up. If you can't sleep at three in the morning, go on to biodynamicsisahoax.com. And that's my old blog. And I was the first one in the, in the world, literally, to push back on, on this hokey baloney uh, that's called biodynamics. It has no long-term sustainability. And I would argue that the reason it is there is because Europeans do not have the same uh, view of agriculture that we do. And, and the reason I say that, and here I am getting in a little bit of hot water, nothing like piss, <laughs> pissing off my European uh, friends and neighbors, is that in Europe, they have downy mildew. Downy mildew is a, is a serious mildew uh, that they got approximately 150 years ago. And through a, a very um, serendipitous way, they discovered that copper sulfate, also called Bordeaux spray, protects the vines from mildew. And being farmers the same world over, 150 years ago, if a little bit was good, a lot was a whole lot better. And they have used copper sulfate now in very high levels to where, and copper is toxic. Uh, It's necessary in very small quantities, but in larger quantities, it's toxic. And I believe, although I can't prove it, that one of the issues is, is copper is in the soils. And they haven't gone to their universities and said, help. So what they do is they try to hide it. And they go to organic with the hope of trying to make it work. Then they went to biodynamic because their soils are dead. Copper's in there and it's causing trouble. And so then they go to biodynamic, and one of the main uh, 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 elements of biodynamics is bringing in pumice, bring, bringing in organic material. Well, that, that's not unique to, to biodynamics. It's been done for centuries. It's an age-old way of doing it. Only they do it, and they do it, and what, by doing that, they can see now that their, their, their soils are, are doing better. The problem is there's still toxicity. And, and in a funny, strange way, Europe has embraced uh, organic farming uh, in a way that America hasn't. And yet, in, uh, in the EU, they're now trying to get the rate of copper sulfate used uh, to go from 6 kilograms per hectoliter down to 4 kilograms per hectoliter. And the organic farmers are screaming bloody murder because they claim they can't farm organically 
with that little amount of copper sulfate. And in fact, in Northern Europe, Northern Italy, I should say, they petitioned the EU to go up to nine kilograms per hectoliter so that because they had such a rainy year. Now, the inorganic growers are using a systemic uh, 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 mildicide, and it's working. And the EU is now saying, well, wait a minute, maybe inorganic use is better than organic <laughs> use because the organic copper, you know, copper sulfate has been allowed and, is, and, and even though it, it's toxic, it is still allowed for uh, organic and biodynamic farm. I believe it's for also biodynamic farming. And so you, you now have a, a clash of concepts. I think organic has a, has a tremendous brand. Sure. But I, it doesn't have two things that sustainability has, which I think are imperative for a farming paradigm to be successful in the long term. One, it doesn't bring into the concept of economic sustainability. And if you can't farm economically sustainability, you're going to lose the, the farm to another use. Sure. The other one is it doesn't bring in the use of BMPs, best management practices, because most best management practices, well, the new advances are being made, you're still stuck into the, the, uh, the, the straitjacket of being organic. So in this country, organic farmers generally use sulfur dust, as do inorganic farmers, uh, to keep um, powdery mildew off the vines. Well, the only difference between organic sulfur and inorganic sulfur is that the organic sulfur producers pay a fee to the, to, to the organic <laughs> uh, 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 parent organizations because sulfur comes from the cracking of oil. In other words, there are low sulfur uh, crude oil and there's high sulfur crude oil. And when you, when you process crude oil into all the different products, one of the things you do is to get rid of that sulfur, which is harmful. And so what they do is they take that, that molten sulfur, sulfur they, they dump it out onto a, a field. When it dries, they scoop it up, they process it, clarify it. And if it's going to go to the organic growers, they pay a fee. But it is exactly the same <laughs> elemental sulfur that goes to each of them. And so th that's a crock. That's, that's, in my opinion somewhat misleading, if not, frankly, fraudulent in, in, sure. in the presentation of what actually is going on. So we have, you have organic, which has a good brand. You have biodynamics, which is going nowhere. You have the, the third paradigm would be, I, I guess, traditional uh, farming, which will eventually die out because it needs, it, it is not environmentally sensitive enough. And then you have what I believe in, which is sustainability. But sustainable agriculture has no brand name recognition. It's boring. It's hard to, to, to understand. So what I hope is that there will be a blending of organic and sustainable to bring the best of both worlds forward. So sort of forward. best for the land and best for the bank. Yes. And, and, in, and, and in California... Um, which has some of the best weather for growing any agricultural crop, we have a fairly small percentage of farms that are truly uh, organically farmed. And it's not enough. 
we, we need we need to get out of um, traditional farming and and have a, a a paradigm that we can look at and say 80 85 90 95 percent of the farms are being farmed in a sustainable manner. And only sustainability, I think, can get ultimately into those high 80s, 90s level. Organic farming will never get much more than 15 to 20%. And that's simply not enough. Let's talk about in the cellar. Yes. Let's talk about your winemaking. Are you using natural yeast? Are you inoculating? <laughs> Are you... Tell me about your winemaking processes. <laughs> Uh, I love it. I, I was using people. Uh, people. People are totally into that. The idea of spontaneous fermentation these days. And I'm so it could be dangerous. Or it could be. I am bad so. Wine. I am so out of it. It is because we were the first ones ever to do it. Seriously. Seriously. In 1975, we were making Pinot Noir, and my brother and I looked around and said, "Okay, who's making a Pinot Noir in the New World that we can look at and say, aha, they're doing it.'" So let's follow them. There was none. <clears throat> and so we said, if we care too much, we will be afraid to try anything that might give us a breakthrough. So we said, okay, let's be cavalier about this. Let's just be wild and crazy. And if it comes to mind, however stupid it may sound, sound let's try it. What have we got to lose? It's just Pinot Noir. <laughs> So we did a wild fermentation. And I called it a Bronco fermentation because it was wild. We're in the West, and what the hell? And what we discovered uh, was that Klekera was the first yeast to take off. It's, that is a true wild yeast. And you know it goes on because the first thing that happens with a wild yeast is that it takes three and a half days. Nothing happens for three and a half days. At three and a half days, approximately three and a half days, you stick your nose in the tank and you go, ah, we screwed up. It stinks of ethyl, ac ethyl acetate, which is nail polish remover. But you're going, but what you learn is that that blows off because Klekera dies off at one and a half percent alcohol or thereabouts. And then Saccharomyces cerevisiae takes over. Now, whatever strain it is or whatever strain in the vineyard or in the winery, that becomes the dominant strain. And the, the wine is then finished fermenting with that strain. And so we did that with Pinot Noir uh, from uh, 75 through, uh, well, for 10, 10, 11 years. And then we gave up Pinot Noir. We also, unbeknownst to us, were doing a three and a half day cold soak. Uh, I'm not sure cold soak even came about until somewhere in the 90s. And then we would, uh, well, anyway, so much for, for, for Pinot Noir. But let me also say that there is no such thing as a wild yeast fermentation. I used to say, and I got corrected recently by a, uh, a, uh, a, a doctor of this stuff, um, that the only place you could ever have a truly wild fermentation is in an area that's never been grown, never, never had grapes grown, never had wine made. So let's say you go to some remote area in, in um, I don't know, the Nevada desert, some, you know, Montana, Wyoming. Well, of course, you can't grow grapes up there anyway. But let's just say that you could. And you grow your grapes and you bring them in. And the first year, you just let them sit. Well, what will happen is that there are yeasts all through the air. And Klekera will probably be the 
non-wine yeast that gets it going. And then another yeast may come in and get the fermentation to continue. And eventually, a cerevisiae, uh, saccharomyces cerevisiae, a true what we call a wine yeast, because it'll ferment wine uh, of high enough sugar into high enough alcohol that'll ferment all of it, uh, will we'll take off. And, I, and, and that can only happen one year, because after that, you have a dominant yeast in, sure, in the winery. The air, right? and, then, oh. and then you take the, the pumice back out into the vineyard, and then now you're infecting that out there. So, so um, this sort of whole idea of natural fermentation. It's ridiculous. It's sort of fallacy. A- absolutely. And then uh, w- what came out of um, some research out of the Okanagan uh, 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 wine growing area is that they did some really interesting research, which we have not, we personally have not been able to do because we want to, we want to follow up on what they're doing. They claim that no matter what you inoculate with, there is a super yeast that has developed itself in the winery and it will take over and finish the fermentation regardless of what you inoculate with. And so just think of a huge war of trillions upon trillions of yeast duking it out as to who gets to munch on the sugar. Right. Uh, the other one, so to, to the answer to your question is that we use captured wild yeast. And Fair people enough. look at me and go, huh? And I go, well, yeah. So, so Montrachet yeast Somebody went to Burgundy and said, well, what are they using here? Well, it turns out this yeast, they, they took this yeast. It was everywhere in Burgundy. And so they captured it. They purified it. They grow it. And it is captured wild yeast. And they call it Montrachet. Same thing out of Champagne. Same thing out of Bordeaux. Same thing out of all of these different places. And then the yeast people then go around and come up with different yeasts. I think the more interesting question and, and discussion is that the people who sell us yeast should be looking to find a yeast which is less efficient in its processing. So instead of taking a, a, a Montrachet yeast or a wild fermentation, however you want to define it, the conversion rate with red wines is about 0.62. And we really, I would really like to have a conversion rate of somewhere in the 0.5s, a yeast which is not efficient. We want a yeast which is very inefficient in converting sugar to alcohol so that we can make wines of lesser alcoholic content. That would sure be nice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Get back down to 12.5% where it belongs. I'd even take 13. Yeah. Okay. I remember when 13% used to be like, 13%, that's astronomically high. Exactly. And today, 13% is, is, is low. Yeah. Is low. So that's that. So you bring up yeast, and yeast is a really important issue. But I think people are, are looking at wild... The, the people who bring up wild fermentation today are people who are trying to find their place in the sun. There's 10,000 wineries in America. Who knows how many wineries there are in the world? So how does a new winery find its little place of importance? And they talk about wild yeast. Wild yeast is old. I mean, wild, we, we were doing wild yeast fermentation for 7,500 years. Right, exactly. And then, then, we, then we started moving forward. One of the issues that California has done is that we went from a small provincial industry to a world world uh wide accepted 
area of quality because we brought science forward. In other words, when I started, we, we, the wine industry was still futzing around with old cooperage, didn't have good technology, didn't have good science. All of that was starting to come out of both Fresno State and, and UC Davis. And that's what propelled us into such a, a preeminent place in the, in, the, in the world of wine, is science. And when I got out of UC Davis, I wanted to go to Europe to see how they did it, but I didn't have any money. Uh, and everything I did have and time was involved sure. here at starting Smith Madrone. But within a very short number of years, the Europeans started coming to us. They wanted to go to UC Davis. They, look, they have such a straight-jacketed industry that they can't do anything differently. Right. So the young people in Italy said, Dad, we don't want to make these Chianti Classicos the way you did it. It's dumb. We, we don't want to use white wine, uh, uh, grapes, white grapes that have been dried on the ground for three days, and then we crush them up. That's stupid. That's wrong. And they said, tough. And so they then went out and said, okay, we'll, we're going to start our own deal. And they started, and that's where came Super Tuscans. And they, they turned their back on the tradition that was bad. Sure. Maybe not bad, but, but not, as good, not as good as it could be. Wasn't responsive to the demands and the tastes of the, of the late 20th century. Uh, I don't have to wait 20 years to drink my Barolo anymore. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and so that, that's another part of the industry. But it, it really, it is science, and then you blend science with art, and then you end up with something. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the problems is you can use too much science, and you can have too much art, and you can have too much kind of, you know, like we, we could then talk about natural wine. And to me, natural wine is another issue where people are trying to find something out there to differentiate themselves. And unfortunately, the wines that I have tasted, if you're going to drink them, you have to come up with a different standard for um, appraising their, their quality. Because if you use our current standard, most of those wines are commercially unacceptable. I mean, they stink to high heaven. And most of the people don't know what they're doing, and that's too bad. Speaking of wines, should yes. we taste some? yes. First wine, 2016 Chardonnay. Just released, we, we uh, fermented at about 24 degrees bricks. Comes in alcohol of 14 to 14.4, something like that. Um, we want good acidity. Uh, we ferment in, uh, in French oak barrels, 100%, generally somewhere between 80 and 100% new French oak barrels. Uh, we use the forest of the oak from the forest of Tronce Allier in Nevers, and that's uh, the forests that are at kind of at the headwaters of the Loire and over the hills from Burgundy. And um, the trees grow very slowly. I'm doing all these on, and, and and they and they grow slowly, and that and they have a very tight grain, and it's that tight grain with a medium toast that we like so much here. It's um. You talk a lot about the wood there, and it's it's not a woody it's not a nose wood, at no. all. I no. mean, as a matter of fact, people get freaked out when you talk about wood and chardonnay these days. And I, I would say that this uh, one of my favorite chardonnays of all time was our 1999 chardonnay, and same thing, fundamentally the same processing of, of the grapes, and yet at at bottling in August, we 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 just yeah, it's not quite ready. So we let it go. We said, well, we'll bottle it after harvest. Then we said, well, we'll bottle it after um, 
the first of the year. We bottled it in the springtime, and it had 18 months of brand new oak on it. Every wow. single barrel was brand new. It didn't you show never took it, huh? because the the tight grain, along with dry farm mountain fruit, works in a way that does not express the oak. Clearly, Spring Mountain is the right place for Chardonnay because yes. folks down below you at Stony Hill are doing some good stuff, mm-hmm. and this is gorgeous. I mean. Wow, just beautiful kind of golden, delicious apple on the nose. And we love acid. And it's not, yeah, sometimes, wow, beautiful acidity. Isn't it? Because sometimes a Chardonnay that has that golden, delicious can be a little flabby. And it's not. On the palate, it's real crisp. And and balances everything. Balance between sugar, acid, uh, tan, I mean, just everything. Uh, mm. Yeah, we love this wine. This is this is uh, this is a very good vintage. It was sixteen as a whole yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next wine is the two thousand fourteen Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, it's eighty five percent Cabernet Sauvignon, eight percent Cabernet Franc, seven percent Merlot, mm-hmm. and it's about uh, 66 percent new French oak. We use uh, the barrels, the once-used Chardonnay barrels, go into the Cabernet. And then we do, uh, which we'll taste next, the Cook's Flat Reserve. And we take those barrels that we use just once, put them into the Cabernet, and then we augment with new barrels. So it's got once-used barrels, and then, uh, so that's probably two-thirds of the blend, and then new barrels, which is a third of the blends. So it's it's still got a fairly good chunk of new oak in it. Uh, again, it's the same barrels. Uh, the Cooper is Marchive, uh, and we have found that those barrels just really work for us. And and I don't want to say that these are the best barrels in the whole world, but they are the best barrels in the whole world <laughs> for enough. us. Yeah, yeah. Wow, super pretty. The- Cabernet to the lighter side of the fruit rather than the darker side, for yes, sure. This is more of a red fruit. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of crazy red, like raspberry is yes. what, I'm, what I get right away. A little bit of cranberry, and then like a little bit of like pencil lead. And we are a winery that is driven more by the the standards or goals, or maybe not goals, but the, the parameters of European wine that... Uh, balance, complexity, elegance, restraint. We, we want a So when we do our blends, uh, and and some people can do their blends within a day, and for us it takes weeks. And one of the things when I'm trying to finally decide which of maybe two or three wines I like the best, I I let my hand reach for the glass of wine that I want to drink. I, I try to let my subconscious take over mm-hmm. and, and, and just let my hand you know, reach out as to which one I want to drink. Now, to me, the standard should be, do I want to drink the whole bottle? Whether I should or not is a different <laughs> That's question. Completely, yeah. But do I want to drink the whole bottle? Because there's a lot of wines that you, you're willing to have a first class of but you really don't want to go back and have it a second and a third because it really doesn't give you what it is that you're looking for. The acidity in this wine is so pretty. Yeah. This is, uh, I use the term screaming for food. For me, I believe that wine 
belongs on the dining room table. It's with friends, family. Drinking alone is not a good thing with wine. It, it's not, it, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it doesn't hit its high tone. Sharing and a bottle of wine makes it better. Sharing the, a bottle of wine with people is, it's a social beverage. It's a beverage where at the end of the day, you can have a glass of wine or two or whatever, and the day washes away. If you have family at the table, you can discuss the day, you have friends over, you have, life is better. And wines that have good acidity go with food. And I learned this, again, my subconscious taught me this. And that is I started looking at, at which wines went with what food. And I started, again, letting my subconscious, letting my gut literally tell me what to eat and what went well. Because I would start pushing some of the food that I wanted to have with my at the end of the dinner with my wine off to the side and I, and I ate the other stuff <laughs> and then I could finish my dinner, finish it with that part of the meal that went with the wine mm -hmm. and made everything flow together. And if you overanalyze, if you, if you try to remember what's supposed to go with what, You've lost it. Unique. We're all individual. We're all unique uh, uh, human beings. And we all have different tastes. And if you'll just trust your mouth, not your eyes. Don't, don't look at the label. Don't look at the food. Taste. You, trust your, what, what, what your mouth and your taste buds and the flavors and the aromas that are being given to you. If you'll just trust that, you'll be much happier in, in your choices that are that that you make when you consume anything absolutely uh and this was 2014 2014 one of the things i found i, I did a tasting a while back where we tasted 13 14s and 15s and to me 14 is the wine to drink while you're waiting for the tannins and everything to settle down in your 13s and 15s and uh this is drinking beautifully yeah uh great structure great structure you. in that one the next wine is the 2013 uh, Cook's Flat Reserve, and I'm having to, you know, dredge up my memory here, but I believe it is 58% Cabernet. It's 25% Cabernet Franc, and if math uh, works, that would make 17% Merlot. Okay. And that's the blend, and what we're trying to do with the Cook's Flat Reserve is to make the very best wine humanly possible, and it's, and it's, and it's designed to go right after the first gross. We're, we have Lafitte, Latour, Aubryon, Margot in, in, in our headlights. That, I mean, that's what we're going for. Where's the name come from? The name is George Cook was the first legal owner of the property. He homesteaded it and got title to the property for having cleared the property, planted the vineyard, and the olive trees that are out front here that are 135 years old. He homesteaded and got title for, for, for doing that. In December 5th, 1884, and if you look over there underneath the sailboat, there's a little... Oh, there's deal. the deed, huh? That, that is what's called a United States land office patent. Okay. And that took federal land and gave it into the public domain, and in this case, to George Cook. And we have uh, an eight-acre uh, parcel up there, uh, which has historically been called Cook's Flat. Now, when we were coming up with a, a tete if you would, wine... We were looking for a name, and indeflatable 
just, you know, all these kind of made up names just left us cold. And we really wanted something that had, 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 a, that, that was centered either on us or the property or the, what we were trying to do here. And, um, and so my brother came up with Cook's Flat Reserve. And so you'll see that this wine is built very differently than the Cabernet. Now, admittedly, it's two different vintages. This is the 13, the Cabernet was the 14. But the structure is very different. It's way more European. For sure, yeah. I think those earthier aromas are coming first mm -hmm. through on this. But behind it is California fruit. Right. There's the California structure, but the softness, the softness, the elegance. You can tell it's a California wine because it's clean as a whistle. There's no funk, mm -mm. no brett, no, no off aromas. And it's, wow. a, it's also, for, for what we're trying to do, is that we believe that for a wine to truly be great, and, and I'm not saying that these wines are going to be received as truly great now, but we're making wines that will eventually, will get recognized for being, I think, or our goal is for this to be made a truly great wine. And that can only be done when the wines have aged. Mm -hmm. Because... I think from an intellectual point of view, you can't make a wine that only lasts 10 or 12 years and have the wine be considered great. It has to be able to age. And, and so what is that aging? I would say that you have to have wines that will be aged 15, 20, 25, 30 oh, years. This one go that 30, far easy. Exactly. I mean, the, the tannins are there, the acidity is there, the fruit is there. Uh, it's, this is young. This is still a baby. But when it comes together in 5, 10, 15 years, and I fully expect a wine like this. You know, sometimes wine, once you get up to that, oh, a lot of California Cabernets, once you get up to that 20-year range, they start to get to that. Oh, they don't those, even get those that. Those drier, older, yeah. kind of, you know, everything dries out, and it's, yeah. you, go, you go from fresh fruit to nuts and things like that. This isn't going to do that. Uh, the Riesling is an off-dry wine. Okay. Uh, actually, I take that back. Uh, misspoke. It's really a dry style wine. It's about 0.65 residual. Okay, just a touch, yeah. This is a varietal that we have always thought is one of the four great wines, wine varieties of the world, meaning that it's Pinot Noir and Cabernet Sauvignon for... Uh, red and Ooh. Chardonnay and Riesling for whites. And I don't mean that it's one of the great white wine varietals of the world. I mean it's one of the great varietals of the world. Sure. And I think, frankly, there happened to be, just so happened, two reds and two whites. This is, well, th that first thing that hits you in, in, in the nose is, for lack of a better term, that petrol. Mm -hmm. um, that's just super pretty. And underneath there... There's like some white flower and some fresh grass. A little bit of uh, apricots and peaches and, and lychee. Mm -hmm. um, Coming in next, yeah. sure. It's just a spectacularly fun drinking wine. This is great. And it doesn't, and 0.6 residual sugar. I don't know if my palate's sophisticated enough to be able to pull no, that out. No, it's right at threshold. It drinks. It's right at It threshold. drinks so dry. It's, it drinks dry. And it ages. This wine will age every bit as well as any of our Cabernets, any of the Reserve, any red wine from the New World or the Old World. 
I will put this wine, our, our, our 2014, up against any 2014 red wine in 25 years. And while maybe we don't win the tasting, we're going to be there and people are being going, well, I really, you know, kind of, I'm not quite sure which one I like better. Because Riesling's on a really good vintage. They age, they mature, they evolve, they develop in a way that all other white wines don't. Geritzstraminer does a little bit. Uh, a 10, 12-year-old dry Geritzstraminer can be a, a, a thing of beauty. Doesn't go into the 20s and 30s like like a Riesling does. But a well-made, and, and look, we don't make it every year. I mean, nature stamps things. And there, you know, nature makes uh, good vintages and bad vintages. Uh, or not so good, I should say, not so good vintages. Um, but when they are good, they are spectacular. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You know, you don't think about Napa Valley and Riesling together much. But yet, right here on Spring Mountain, there's a couple places making some just dynamite Riesling. So Stony Hill, our neighbor, makes a little bit of Riesling. Um, we've gotten rid of most of the bad producers of Riesling. And part of it is because Chardonnay, with the white wine boom that came in the late 70s, people started looking at, at, um, at Chardonnay as a cash cow. <clears throat> now, when I started, Chardonnay... Cabernet, Pinot Noir, and and uh, Cabernet Sauvignon all sold for the same amount of money on a on a per tonnage basis. Really, four hundred and twenty five dollars a ton. <laughs> there was no distinction wow. between them. And and then with the seventies, Chardonnay kind of went up to the to the top of the heap for uh, white wines. And then in the late eighties, um, Cabernet with uh, with the uh, French Paradox. Uh, went up to the top with Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Now, Cabernet and Chardonnay were always the dominant varietals, but not in the way that the public perceived them. Sure. Um, and with Riesling, Rieslings have always been great. They've always aged well. And I would say that there is hardly a varietal out there that Riesling isn't isn't good. I mean, that, that pardon me, that doesn't have the diversity that Riesling has to go with food. Um, the only thing that Riesling doesn't excel at is steak. Right. But if you go with fresh fish, you go with any of the white it's meats, you go with chicken and pork sugars, for sure. you go with uh, Asian cuisine, Indian cuisine. Um, it may not be the best, but it's the best of any wine that will go with right, Asian right. or Indian cuisine. And, and, uh, and it is a wine that uh, just holds its own. As, sure. as a wine by itself, uh, the wines uh, are all, all 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 the wines are absolutely delicious. I, I think they speak to a uh, to your sensibilities when it comes to uh, grape growing and ideas behind the winemaking here. Just just all texturally great, beautifully balanced, and fairly priced, which is nice to see. Well, Stu, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure to talk to you as always. Your 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 insight into the world of wine in Napa Valley is 
just wonderful to listen to. And of course, your wines are delicious to taste. It's been fun anytime. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpourpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 